I encourage you to take out your Bibles. If you do not have one, um, you will find one in the, one of the chairs in front of you. Um, as a church, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, and you will be greatly helped if you are looking at the Bible while I preach the Bible, all right? Um, want to make sure that everybody understands this is not uh, my idea, all right? This is God's word that um, we're going to explore now for the next couple of minutes. Um, let me go ahead and pray before we dive into this text. Father God, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. Lord, we think of the life that you have called us to as a people. Lord, and as we sit here this morning, your people, Lord, we do so with your word in our hands. Lord, you have resourced us well to live the life that you have called us to live Father, I pray as we look now at your word, what you have to say, Lord, I pray that your spirit would reveal to us, your people, your, your truth, Lord, and that you would um, take that truth and that you would use it to shape and to form our hearts and our lives. Where there are some among us, Lord, this morning who need to be encouraged, Lord, I pray that your word would encourage them. For those among us this morning who need to be challenged, and your word, Lord, I pray your word would challenge them. And for those of us this morning who need to be convicted by your word, Lord, I pray that your word would convict. And I pray that the result, Lord, of this encouragement, of the challenging, of the exhortation, the conviction, Lord, I pray that it would be a people who look more and more like their God. Lord, take these words which we believe to be eternal and true, and we ask that you would write them on our hearts this morning. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. 13-year-old Nicholas Barclay was last seen in 1994 playing basketball with a group of his friends. Three years later, in October of 1997, law enforcement in Spain would contact, they actually received a interesting call from somebody that was living in a shelter in Spain um, who was claiming to be Nicholas Barclay. Caller said that Nicholas was living in the Spanish shelter after escaping from a child sex ring operation. Upon hearing the news, immediately, as you can imagine, Nicholas's family was filled with excitement and anticipation to bring their lost son home. So the sister flew to Spain. While Nicholas's mother believed that this man who had entered their home was indeed her child, others were suspicious. This individual would live with them for some five months. Uh, what caused their suspicion was that unlike Nicholas, um, whose hair was blonde and whose eyes were blue, this man who is now calling himself Nicholas Barclay his hair was brown, and so were his eyes. This individual claimed that his abductors had chemically altered his hair and his eye color, and that he had picked up, conveniently so, a Spanish, sorry, a French accent while living for three years overseas. So now he spoke with a heavy French accent. Five months this man lived in the Barclay home and called himself Nicholas. Well, 
uh, after an investigator who was working on a film that was kind of telling the story of their family really began to grow suspicious, wasn't believing the story, convinced the individual to take a fingerprint test, um, it would come to the attention that this individual in the home was not actually Nicholas Barclay, but in fact he was Frederick Pierre Bourdin, a 23-year-old French citizen who was posing as Nicholas Bourdin had a criminal history in Europe, and, but the crimes were always the same. Some 500 times this man was guilty of stealing somebody else's name. For five months, the imposter was Nicholas Barclay by name only. He would spend some six years in prison for his crime... For the confusion, you can just imagine the confusion and the damage and the pain that he caused. Brothers and sisters, I share this, this story this morning because there are, just like Frederick Pierre Bourdin, there are many who are guilty of a similar crime against Jesus. They are Christians by name only. Nominally, they identify with the church, but their heart and their life tell a completely different story. And their hearts, they know it's a charade. And the result is very similar. Does damage causes pain. You think of what damage does that do? Somebody who claims the name of, of a Christian but is not actually a Christian. What damage does that cause? Well, if you just consider children, youth, um, some of the most challenging youth to lead to the Lord are, are oftentimes, not, not always, but oftentimes children who've grown up in a home and they've watched parents Live out the Christian, not live out the Christian life, but claim to be Christians by name only, right? They've seen the hypocrisy in their homes, and as a result, they turn away from the faith and say, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. It's damaging. It also damages really just our witness as a people. If we are to display God's name for the world to see and get an idea of who God is, and yet there are people who claim the name but don't live the life, it damages our witness. Most importantly, though, it brings dishonor to the name of God himself, who has placed his name upon us. And we are denying God in his gospel if we live this way. If we say we're a Christian and we identify as a Christian by name only, we actually dishonor God's name. This is a problem. In our passage this morning, Paul is pleading with his church, with Jesus Christ's church, to live a life in conformity with the calling they have received. To live a life in conformity with the truth that they have heard. And to live a life in conformity with the very person of Jesus Christ himself. If we were to think, what is the big idea of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, I'll say it in a statement. Brothers and sisters, because you are a Christian, don't live like you aren't. 
Because you are a Christian, brother, sister, stop living like you're not. It's what Paul tells the Ephesians here in chapter 4, and it's what he tells us this morning. As we consider Paul's message to the church, I think three words will be helpful to kind of take us through the text. The first word is that of transformation. We see this in verses 17 and 19. We don't actually see the word transformation, but I want to submit to you that, that as we consider living the life that God has called us to as a follower of Jesus, transformation is inherent. Change had better take place if it, it does take place in authentic Christianity. Paul begins by pointing out that there's a transformation that has taken place in the lives of the Ephesian Christians. Because of this, they are now a distinct people. He's writing to a people who have been transformed by the gospel. And if you are a Christian, you have experienced, Paul says, a transformation. It has taken place. Change has happened in your life. There is an old you, he established this in chapter 2. It was dead in your sins and in your trespasses. And the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is that in your death, in your sins and in your trespasses, Jesus Christ comes to you and makes you alive. Amen? Is that an awesome reality? Death to life. Could there be a more significant transformation? This is the story of every Christian from death to life by Jesus. And, and Paul tells us, we, we know if we we're familiar with the Bible, that this is the design for God's people. He, he designs them to be a transformed people because in God's glorious providential plan, he has determined a group of people would, that would look like him, that would be modeled after him, would then reflect his character to the watching world. They would be a witness, a distinct people among all the people. We see this in the Old Testament. You know, familiar with the story of Moses as he leads God's people out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of the land of slavery. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, he prepares them to go into the promised land and he prepares them for the type of people that they should be when they go into the promised land. We see this in chapter 4, um, verses 5 through 8. I'll just read it for us real quick. But you... Who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. See, I have taught you statues and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear these statutes, they will say, Surely, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So the idea in the Old Testament was that as God delivers his people into the promised land, he gives them his law. And as they stay obedient to his law, they keep his law, his statutes, his commandments. They keep it and they live it that the rest of the world will see them living out this law and they will say, my goodness, what beautiful laws and commandments and wisdom you have. And as a result, because this is who you are, show me your God. You, you must have a great God. You are a mighty people who live out the wisdom that God has called you to. And they will give glory 
to God as a result. They would be a distinct people among the land of many peoples. And the story is exactly the same thing as we get into the New Testament. Jesus shows us how this happens in him. If you're familiar with the John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays that the Father would keep his disciples from evil. That they would be in the world, but not of the world. And that he would sanctify them in the truth. That he would set them apart in the world. It's his prayer for his disciples and it's his prayer for, for his church, for us today. That we would be a distinct people. As we have been a transformed people, that we would be distinct among all the other peoples. And as a result, God would be glorified. Paul tells us in this, throughout Ephesians that this transformation that takes place is necessary for that purpose, to that end. Throughout the passage, he uses this word walk. Um, actually, throughout the book, we see it first in chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We see it in chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. And in 5, verse 8, walk as children of the light. In chapter 5, verse 15, walk in wisdom. Paul uses the word walk. Another word that we could translate it is simply the word live. So live as children of light. Live in wisdom. Live in love. He has called us to a unique and a particular way of living, a way of walking that is distinct from the rest of the world. Paul begins chapter 4, if you remember from last week, with this de descent from the lofty and cosmic purposes of God into the practical day-to-day -day trivialities, the nitty-gritty step-by-step reality of life. And he does so for a purpose. If you think of the first three books, the th first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is up here in the clouds. The sovereign purposes of our great God. He lifts our heads up and shows us who God is and what God has done. And then in chapter, the beginning of chapter 4, he begins to shift his focus now into the step-by-step -step realities of every single life. And the truth is, you will have no success... The reason why Paul does this is you will have no success living out the step by step, the walking the path he has called you to if you do not first understand the glory of God and who he is in his goodness and what he has done, right? We'll see this later on in the passage as Paul calls us to a particular moral life, an ethic that is unique to Christians. We'll see the logic that he, he uses to compel us in this direction. But you can't have one without the other. If you are not focused on God and the glorious truth of who he is, you will have little success in actually walking out the path that he's laid before us, step by step. Notice the language that Paul uses to describe in verses 17 through 19, he uses, he talks about the former you. If you're a follower of Jesus, the former you. You as a Gentile, an unbelieving you. And he does so in three categories. First, he talks about the former mind that characterizes an unbelieving person. And he says that they are futile in their minds. There's a futility of their minds. The readers of this letter were brought up in a pagan context. They had given themselves and their lives over to pagan worship and idolatry. Dumb Idols, idols that could not think, that could not hear, that could not respond to them, that could not do anything. They were worshiping these idols. And so the language he used here is very similar. As a result of your empty worship, your minds now are also empty. You are futile, he says, 
in your minds, futile in your minds. And the result of this futility is that you are darkened. You are living in darkness. You can't actually see and perceive reality. You have limited visibility because you are darkened by the state of your minds. You are living ultimately in ignorance. And the result of this darkness, the result of this futility of the emptiness in your mind, he says, is alienation. Alienation from God. As a result, you are separated from God. That's the status. That's the state of an unbelieving person. Their minds are futile. They are darkened and they are alienated. Why are their minds that way? He tells us because the, the problem isn't really in our minds. He says the problem's actually in our hearts. That's what your former mind looks like because of the status of your former heart. The reason they can't get their minds right because they're mentally corrupt is because of the condition of their hearts. Look at verse 18. It says, all of this is due to the hardness of their heart. Folks, the truth is, as I stand here this morning, as you sit there this morning, our deepest problem in life is that apart from the grace of God, my heart is hardened towards God. My heart is like a rock towards everything that is spiritual. Apart from the divine intervention of God, things of God don't move me. They don't attract me. And they certainly do not delight me. This is a far deeper problem than ignorance. It is the cause of ignorance. A hardened heart. Now it can be tempting this morning, if you're like me sometimes when you read the Bible, to be thinking about that hard-hearted person in your life. Right? Some of you might be elbowing somebody next to you. Hard-hearted? Come on. Stubborn a little lately, right? I want to ask you this morning to avoid that temptation. Okay? Because the truth is, every single one of us share the same fundamental problem. Apart from God, our rocks, or sorry, our hearts are like rocks. They're hardened to the love of God. They're hardened to the voice of God. They are hardened to the way of God. This is how God diagnosed the problem of Israel in the book of Ezekiel. If you remember the, just the story of God's people constantly turning from God to idols, right? God demonstrates over and over and over again his mighty grace and his glorious love and his wonderful purpose for his people. And their response, you would think, just waiting to embrace God with their open arms. Well, it's short-lived and they constantly turn from him and continue to give themselves over to idolatry. But God continues to pursue them. In Ezekiel, he says, my people need a new heart. That's the problem. I will remove the heart of stone, he says, from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. I will take out that which can't be worked with, that which is hardened, and I will put in something that is malleable, that is moldable, that is shapeable, a heart, a new heart, a heart of flesh. Jesus says exactly the same thing 
He describes the spiritual condition of Israel some 600 years later in exactly the same way. Maybe you're familiar with the story in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Early on in his ministry, Jesus goes into a synagogue. He discovers a man with a withered hand, a man who was crippled. Right? And as he walks into the synagogue, every eye is on him. He's already got a following. He's already doing some things, creating some buzz throughout Israel. Every eye is fixed on Jesus, waiting to just trip him up, just waiting for him to say or do the wrong thing so that they could bring accusation against him, right? Well, Jesus doesn't disappoint. He goes into the synagogue. He discovers the man with the withered hand, and he heals the man. Then he looks around at them with anger, and the Bible says he was grieved at their hardness of heart. The man stretched out his hand, and he healed the man. The problem with the religious elite of the day was that their heart was hardened. Now, isn't it something that they bared the name of Yahweh? But their heart was not his. Their heart was hardened towards him. And the result of this, Paul tells us, is that their former walk looks Really, really shows their hand, shows their heart. The hardness of their heart ultimately results not just in a darkening of the mind and a deadness of the soul, but also really in a reckless lifestyle. Look at how he describes their lifestyle in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They lack moral restraint. Because of the hardness of their heart and the darkening of their mind, they no longer have... Moral restraint or even a moral compass for that matter. They have given themselves over to lifestyle of licentiousness, a perversion of, of how they were created. And it's a lifestyle since they are greedy for. It's interesting because it's like they just can't get their fill. Right? Isn't that what sin is ultimately? You just have a little taste and you just want more and it just leaves you wanting more and more and more. Never satisfied. Never satisfied. Paul talks about this downward progression in morality in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. He says, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. One of the worst things that God can do is just hand us over in our rebellion to our sin. This hardening of hearts leads to every kind of corruption you could ever imagine. And Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, I don't want you to have anything to do with it. Don't flirt with the sin you once were in. Don't make accommodations in your heart for the views of this present darkness. We're really good at finding ways to justify, to entertain, or even to condone the sins that in our flesh we wish we could have. Paul says, do not do it. The good news is, for us, this is really a, a picture of our former life apart from Christ, right? Futile in our minds, pardoned in our hearts, and just wiling out in our lives, right? Just having at it. 
It's a great description of what our life looks like apart from the grace of God. But Paul tells us in verses 20 to 21 that he supplies for us the resources we need to live a different way. And it's through his education. So if the first word you wrote down was transformation, verses 20 to 21, the next word you should write down is education. Paul tells us that we have been properly resourced through the schooling we have received in Jesus. Christians are not only the ones who, who see change as a positive thing. Change is a popular thing, right? You think of all the books and the magazines and the section of the stores that are promoting self-improvement. It's not just a Christian concept. If you were to think of just our culture today, there are really kind of two popular ways that um, folks encourage, the world kind of encourages us towards change. One of those is to, to elevate our reasons, our reasoning above our passions, Right? So we, we, we think about these difficult things. I, we recognize there's a problem. Maybe there's some areas in our life that we would like to grow. And this is a, a secular way of, of helping you see change in your life. And the argument just says, think about it. Right? Come up with a plan, a disciplined plan. Maybe there's steps involved. Think deeply about it. And we know that thinking is not all that is required to do this. Right? In James chapter 2, we learn that even the demons believe in the things of God, and yet they shudder, right? They, they understand who God is, right? Thinking isn't going to simply get us there. The other more popular, maybe more popular, especially today, version of how do you improve yourself is to set your desires free in life, right? God has, the, the, the logic kind of goes that you are a unique individual, Right? You are special and you are unique and, and you have certain unique sort of identity inside of you. And if you just let those passions free into the world, that will free you up to live the life that you want. And you'll be able to change and become who you are. And then nobody can tell you you're wrong because it's all about who you think you are and who you want to be and the passions in your heart. Set them free if you want to know change and if you want to live life fully. Well, this we know maybe this is the more popular one in our culture today, it also can't be right. And the reason it can't be right, first of all, we just saw biblically that our heart is hardened, right? And our minds are futile, right? And we want to free that up for everybody else. I think the more obvious reason it can't be right is what happens when the feelings Inside of you, the desires and the passions that define you are freely expressed but come into conflict with your feelings and your feelings. Or, maybe more obvious, are illegal or socially unacceptable. Now what? Right? So that can't be the answer. Paul tells us the true, meaningful Change comes through Jesus. And until you are properly schooled in Jesus, change ain't going to happen. At least if it does, it won't be to your benefit. So he uses words to tell us what this schooling, what does it look like to be schooled by Jesus? First he says, you have learned Christ you have learned Christ. Look at verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ. Paul tells us that the subject of our education is Jesus himself. 
He is the subject. He is the content. He is what we, who we are learning. The subject is Jesus. And we learn him. Being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, ultimately is committing yourself to learning the way of Jesus. He's the subject of our schooling, of our education. He also says that you have, and keep reading, assuming that you have heard about him. He is not just the subject of our teaching. And in the original language, it, 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 some translations read it differently, but really what it's saying is that you have, you have learned about him. You could also translate it, you have learned him. You have heard, sorry. You have heard about him. You have heard him. Jesus is not just the subject of our teaching. He's also the teacher. He's also the one who's showing us, who's teaching us what it looks like to live. He says that, in John chapter 10, 27, that my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. A student, a pupil of Jesus who's being schooled by Jesus hears what Jesus has to say, is familiar with his voice. And the result is Jesus knows them. So he, he is who we are learning and he is the one who's doing the teaching. We're taught in him. The third thing is that we are taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. He's not just the subject. He's not just the teacher. He's also the context. Re relationship with Jesus is how we learn to live Jesus. Right? He doesn't sit removed from us. But this is the good news of the gospel is that God in his, in his glory descends to us, becomes one of us, and not just one of us, but the best one of us. And he lives quite possibly the most painful life. And he does all of it while being perfectly obedient to his father, right? So Jesus shows us what he wants from us. He instructs us and he comes with us that we might learn Jesus, it's done in the safety and in the security of a relationship. When I think of like my home and there's sometimes, it's hard to imagine if you know my family, it's really hard, but sometimes there's kids who make poor choices and they need to be corrected. Again, I know it's, it's hard to imagine. Um, and sometimes discipline needs to happen in the home, right? And when that happens, it's never fun for me or for my child, it's never fun, but it's always done with security, with certainty, right? Whether it's in the moment or shortly thereafter, there's a moment when maybe an arm goes around a shoulder or maybe on a leg and assures them that even though they were out of bounds and it wasn't fun coming back, that I'm still their dad. Their mom is still their mom, right? It's done with the security and in the, the safety of a relationship. And our schooling with Jesus happens in the same way. We learn Christ because Christ comes to us and lives with us. He doesn't just give us this education. He shows us, he accomplishes it, this transformation for us. If you think about learning Christ, which is what is so critical for us, as we learn Christ, 
this idea of relationship is so critical. He gives us a, a view, too, of what it looks like. I don't know if any of you guys are into, like, magazines, uh, modeling magazines. I used to get, and it's hard to imagine, but I used to get, like, fitness magazines, a regular subscription back in the day, okay? It's hard to, I know, you're probably like, oh, that explains it. That's why he's so, so fit and strong and everything. Um, but... But, you know, you, you look at these magazines and you turn one page after the other and they're selling you products, right? You know, powders and shakes and whatever, plans. I don't know. They're trying to sell you stuff. And they do so by giving you images of what, if you have this product, if you follow this plan, this is what you can look like, right? This could be these, this six-pack could be your six-pack, right? That's the idea. It gives you a vision of what ultimately you're going to. And this is out of God's grace, such a wonderful, when you think about the incarnation, how he has graced us and resourced us so well. As we look at the Bible, we get a vision of what God is calling us to be, how God is calling us to live, how, how Jesus walked this earth and, and loved his father, submitted to him, while simultaneously loving his neighbor, whoever the neighbor was. Love them. Jesus is the vision that God gives us of what he is trying to do in us. The life that he has for us. It is Jesus. Jesus is mentioned some 56 times in this book. Jesus the Christ, most of them have a title next to him. Almost all of them do, except for right here, where it just says Jesus, in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. All the other 55 times, there's a title, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord. It's almost as if Paul is causing us, forcing us to think about Jesus, the man. Jesus, the human being, that we are now to model our lives after this, after in Jesus, we have a picture of what our new self looks like. We see ourselves looking like him, loving like he loves. He is the God-man to be sure, but he's also the truest human. We no longer have to follow in the footsteps or walk in the way of Adam. He's given us a new Adam, a new man who forges a new path. He picks us up and he puts us on it. And calls us to follow in his footsteps. In Romans 8, 29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What the work, the transformation that Jesus, God is doing in our life, the education that he is giving us is to make us look more and more like his Son. And it's a good reminder to us this morning that Christianity is not primarily about bad people becoming good or good people becoming better. That's not God's interest. God's interest is, in about, is dead people becoming alive. And that can only happen through the transforming education of Jesus Christ. Finally, we see, what does it look like to participate in this? We have transformation. There is change that is inevitable in the life of a, of a Christian, right? It happens through this educational process. 
learning Christ, being with Christ, Christ as the subject, as the teacher. And finally we see what does it look like to participate in this. We've been fully resourced for it. You know, if you were to think of, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, and you were to think of, let's say, a moment when you would say you were converted to Christianity, when you first Receive the gift of God's grace, the gift of eternal life. If you were to think of that moment, think about what defined that moment. What is it? It's all a, a work of God's grace. What did, it, what did it require from you? Two things, faith and repentance. Two sides of the exact same coin. You cannot separate just like you can't separate tails from heads, you cannot separate faith and repentance. So when we become a Christian, we, we put our trust in Jesus Christ and we renounce and we repent of our old life. And this action, this step sets up an entire pattern that all of our life will follow. Martin Luther famously said in his 95 thesis, the very first one, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. All of life for the Christian, the path that we are called to live is all a life of repentance. Paul tells us it looks like first putting off your old self. It's not just assuming a name, right? But it's a new pattern of living. Being now educated in Christ, you understand that being a learner of Jesus requires a repudiation, a radical and continual unlearning of your former self. A former you that is constantly calling you back. Right? And most of us know this and can relate to this. A former you that is constantly calling you back, reminding you of how you guys used to once kick it. Right? Come on, we can do this again. Constantly. Jesus tells us, Paul tells us here, that, that the life of the disciple is putting off continually of that old self. But it's not just putting off, it's also being renewed in the spirit of your minds. We see this in verse 23. You won't find this phrase anywhere else in the Bible. It's unique. The spirit of your minds, renewing it what is that? What does that mean? Well, it's the spiritual essence of your new thinking. It must be renewed. How? If we were to go on, we'll see this next week, but if you go on into the passage 25 through the end of the chapter, you will see that, that Paul follows a similar pattern. He talks specifically of a negative thing that we should have nothing to do with. He says the thing that we should have something to do with, and then he provides for us the logic, the reason why. For example, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So the reason that we should be committed to the truth is because we are members one of another, right? He provides for us a reason for this. And what does it mean to renew the spirit of your minds? It means that we are constantly setting our minds on that reason, right? We're constantly going back to Ephesians chapter 1 through Ephesians chapter 3, and we are thinking about God and his grace and his love and his kindness and his mercy to us. Constantly be reminded why we are to commit ourselves to this. And the third thing he tells us is that we are to put on the new self. We are to put on the virtue of Christ. Do you realize what a high 
calling it is to be a Christian. New Testament scholar reflected on this text reminds us that it is no small thing to be a Christian. He gives you his name. The greatest name, the name that we just got done singing to and about. He gives us that name and he says, put it on. It is who you are. This is you. Be who you are. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is where we are headed in glory, brothers and sisters. This is one day God will fully complete this. And our journey on this earth is day by day to look more and more like his son in his righteousness and in his holiness. So in closing, what do we do about it? How do you, in a question, I think that we have, we have these, these scripture journals. Some of you may be new to the Bible. And if you're new to the Bible, sometimes it can be intimidating. Um, you pick it up and you think, I don't know where to start. I don't know how to read it. I don't know any context or any history. Um, with these scripture Bibles, we've got a list of questions that's kind of like in a bookmark form in there. And I would recommend, it's a wonderful tool to help you discern the truth of God's word on your own. Okay? It gives you several questions for you to be asking as you're reading the Bible. And one of those Questions is the third question. What concrete steps can I take to faithfully respond to this passage today? It's a question that we should, every time we entertain, every time we read the word of God, we should be asking that question of ourselves. Because he doesn't just give it to us. God doesn't see us as heads on a stick, right? With no hearts. Just big heads and he just wants those heads to get huge. Fill them up with knowledge. Just fill them up, fill them up, fill them up. That's not what God does. That's not who he sees us. We read the Bible. We learn the Bible so we can obey the Bible, right? So as we look at God's word, a question we should always be asking is, what can I do to obey to this word? Well, so first application is if you're here this morning and maybe this grace, this name, maybe the name of Christian is one you've never even claimed, but maybe it's because the grace of God has never actually penetrated your heart Maybe you're sitting there this morning and, and you maybe have been sensing God's calling, his working on your life. The first application would be come out of the darkness into the light, right? Jesus, in his love for you, lived the life that nobody here can live, that you have been trying to live. He lived it. And he suffered for you because you can't. And he extends to you this morning through his word and his spirit, his gift of life. And the challenge for you this morning is if you are not a follower of Jesus, to reach out and to receive that gift of grace through faith and repentance. Come to him, receive the gift of salvation. It's the first step. For those of us here this morning who are followers of Jesus, the application is pretty simple, honestly. It's stop flirting with sin. Stop playing around. See, God in his kindness to, to us knows what that will do 
to us, right? He knows. And he gives us his word and he says, do not live like your former self. That's the old you. You are in my son a new human being, a new creation. Stop flirting with sin. And the wonderful thing about this is we get to do it as a community of people, right? I don't stand up here as somebody who has figured it out and who is perfect and who no longer has sin tempting me. Every single one of us, we get placed on the exact same path. And the truth is we all need one another in this process. God has made for himself a people, one new man. So if you go back to the previous chapters and you think about God's glorious design for the church, right? Part of the reason he's designed it this way is for your good, for your sanctification, for your growth in godliness. If we are placed on this path, we are placed on this path as a people in a community, okay? And so, so as we confess our sins to God, we need to let other people into those as well. One of the ways that we do this at Parkview East is through community groups, right? I'm not going to ask you to just stand up and say, hey, I'm messing, I'm messing around with this sin or I'm flirting with this one or I, I struggle with this this week. This is not the time or the place for that, okay? Just to be clear. But if God is prompting your heart right now, I implore you not to neglect the sound of his voice. As his sheep, you hear it. What are you going to do with it? Okay? All of the Christian life is a life of faith and of repentance. Okay? Being schooled by Jesus, the loving, gracious professor himself. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father God, we thank you so much for um, your word just this morning. Just a reminder, Lord, that you, um, I pray that we would all be just reminded by what you have saved us from. Lord, as we look back and we think of our former self, Lord, I pray that the effect would be that your grace and your mercy and your love will come into full view for us, Lord and would compel us to put off the former self, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind as we put on our new self, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would use us, brothers and sisters, to help one another look more and more like your son. Lord, and I pray that we would see that our, our life is it's one of all of faith and repentance, Lord, but it's also all of grace. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, just help us, help us see our need for you in our life and not hold back and asking for your help. We ask these things in your name. Amen.